Rusty Quill presents. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Minerva's Nourishing Noodle Juice. Come home from a hard day's work and scoot on into a steaming bowl of hearty noodle juice, fortified with savory vegetables and enough noodles to keep a family fed and asking for another bowl. Minerva's Nourishing Noodle Juice is a distinct meal from a can with a delicious broth. Remember, it's not soup, it's noodle juice. Minerva's Solutions. Save your regrets for tomorrow. In a strange city lying alone, resignedly beneath the sky, the melancholy waters lie. There was a time when there were no waters in Lanula Park, when it was just known as the Commons, a dusty plot of land cut away from the growing buildings with a distant view of the first hints of skyline. The occupants of the park were just workers clearing brush, chopping footpaths, and carving out a reservoir, every step built by hand. A worker's camp and small community, the Commons folk had made the plot their home until the day they let the waters flow to fill part of the pond. As dangerous and daunting and even deadly the many forms water can take with the promise of drowning or freezing or even blood. It's amazing how comforting water can be in other forms, like the rejuvenating comfort of a warm bath or what a simple bowl of soup can do for the ragged spirit. Eleanor's Nightshade Cafe started as a simple shack serving laborers that were building the park as the city expanded. Workers made their way to a tiny wooden shack with a golden flickering firelight and a smell of something enchanting at the end of a day's hard labor. Calloused hands and dusty overalls would throw down tools in a pile, and they would stretch a line in front of two large, simmering pots, where Eleanor would ladle out bowls of rest and relief and possibly a little conversation. The workers would squat in the dust and form a large semicircle where they would hand around flasks of whiskey and play harmonica and sing as they succumbed to exhaustion. Eleanor was a young woman of 25 when she started feeding her family and friends and soon realized she could make a decent buck, spooning out simple soups to the working folks. Word spread and soon the shack grew into a counter, and the counter grew to a three-room restaurant and a deck looking out over the newly completed Lanula Park, Arvum Pond, and sculpted fountain. A patio with iron tables, a simple dining area with wood seating, and threw doors into a small room with an iron stove and short lunch counter. Not much had changed over the years except the daily specials, especially the one daily special that was pretty much every day, Eleanor's Scarlet Bisque. It became a staple of the neighborhood that just about everyone indulged in once or twice a week. If someone couldn't afford a bowl, Eleanor would let them work one off doing dishes in the back for a shift. If the newsies came by, she'd trade papers to fill their thermoses. The secret to the bisque was the addition of a generous portion of cask-aged sherry that Eleanor kept below. The sherry supply started from a romance Eleanor had in younger days with a spirit broker who'd since split town. The romance ended, but the sherry stayed and the cask stacked to the ceiling as it mellowed in the cellar. The soup was accompanied by fresh baked bread hand-kneaded by Eleanor's seemingly mystic grandmama. 
who in her old age would shuffle around the dining area with a covered basket, a face so amassed with wrinkles it would fold in concentration like a crumpled piece of paper, and then expand outward in a bright look of concern as if without bread your life was in jeopardy. She would ask in her thick accent, more bread? And even if you kindly declined, she would rip off a healthy section of still warm loaf, its flaky crust rubbed lightly with butter and garlic and grandmother healing magic. A power that made colds and hangovers vanish almost instantly and gave you, at least for the afternoon, the feeling of being loved and appreciated without any sense of judgment or pressure from the ills of the world. Under normal circumstances, the Nightshade Cafe would have been leveled for an upper-class tea room overlooking the park fountain. But the neighborhood love for Eleanor's bisque and Grandmama's bread prevented even a whimper of speculation and probably staved off a potential working-class neighborhood riot that would have burned the Park Row high-rises to the ground. They could keep their obscene wealth and baubles, but you don't mess with Grandmama and you don't mess with the Scarlet Bisque. To the ragged spirits of the city, those were sacred. If you can't make it to Eleanor's and want to attempt tomato biscuit home, I recommend the following. Roast some ripe tomatoes, then remove the skin, saute some onions and butter, and then add the tomatoes and chicken stock, sugar, salt, pepper, and bring it all to a boil, then reduce to a simmer. Extinguish the heat, then add in sherry and heavy cream, and fresh herbs and seasonings to taste. You'll have to find your own bread, and of course you'll have to clean your own dishes when finished. Fortunately for Eleanor, she didn't do dishes anymore. For that, she had Dominic. Dominic, with his hairy forearm tattoos, rolled-up cuffs and stubby cigar, plunged dirty bowls and pots into warm, soapy sinks of water with a loud plunk as he scrubbed them. He'd applied for dishwasher and had sold himself as some kind of bowl-scrubbing expert, whatever that means. After some time, he was promoted to kitchen porter. He'd rather roast or blanch tomatoes than wash dishes and pawned off the work whenever possible. It wasn't too hard as he was able to trade a couple bowls for a stack of dishes pretty much any time he wanted. As a warehouseman, the closest to tomato bisque he'd ever had was hot water and ketchup with some soda crackers at a downtown lunch counter. Dominic didn't usually spend his money on food, and now flush and soup, he saved his pennies for dice and rye. Dominic had finished sweeping and was pulling down the chairs for the lunch service when he heard a commotion outside. Within moments, the front doors burst open as Constable Hughes and Inspector Bennett rushed in mid-conversation with a small group of witnesses in tow, trying to sort out the details of the morning's alleged tragic accident. Bennett asked Eleanor for the use of her private room to organize the search and recovery efforts, to which she immediately agreed. Constable Hughes didn't bristle at authority. He didn't care. Honestly, he never really wanted to be bothered with responsibility. He found it a relief when he could make things someone else's problem. In this case, he was just glad to have help in looking for his partner, Shiner. Partially since he was worried about his arrangements being fouled and partially due to him looking out for the little guy. Hughes situated the witnesses in one corner of the dining area. He tucked his top hat under his arm and followed the divine scent of soup into the kitchen to distract himself from his worry while Bennett got set up. Inspector Bennett had been brought in quick, just as he got to his desk in the morning, right as the call came in. He barely got the details before someone said there was possible foul play and he needed to get some witness statements. He passed by the men out in the cold on the ice as they were still in the process of dragging the pond. Outside, they made it through another six inches of ice. The torches created black, bubbly water and steam. The saws pulled another jagged chunk away. A constable and waterproof waders bobbed in the cold, probing the water with a hook on a long stick. 
Inspector Bennett was much younger than Hughes and was missing the paunch and shuffle that came from a life on the beat. He made Inspector not long ago and was given a hand-me-down Inspector coat as the department was short. His had three white buttons with white thread instead of the usual black fixed below the lapel. He wore a bowler hat as many inspectors did and spent a few moments every morning sharpening pencils to carry in his pocket to make sure he was never at a loss throughout the day. He dragged a table to the center of the back room and arranged chairs around it, one on his side and placed a notepad and a sharp pencil opposite the two chairs on the other. He ushered out the rest of the patrons to the front, save one stubborn old man eating soup in the corner. The man had just given him a look and Bennett didn't want the headache. He dusted off the chairs with his handkerchief and flipped his notebook to the list of witnesses he'd recorded from Hughes' quick update. Hughes had mixed up a couple of the witness statements already, and there didn't seem to be anything conclusive about a kid falling in the ice. Bennett was eager to start the interrogations. If you could really call them that, there were just more witness statements that he wanted to take as he tried to figure out what exactly had happened. This morning, between some of the quicker ones Hughes had taken from the crowd, it turns out that there was or was not or was a body, a person, a boy, a lady, an animal, some kind of thing that had fallen in under the ice, and he might have been shoved or not on purpose, and uh, he was just trying to get clarity. He thought he would bring in some of the other witnesses just to make sure he could get a longer statement and actually interview some of them. There was mention of foul play, but they hadn't produced any kind of body. Was this some kind of scuffle or fight? Just some kind of disagreement with kids taunting that became an accident? Surely this couldn't have been premeditated. The suspect's guardians were present. Bennett wanted to talk to them to see what they had and also ask a few questions from the boy that apparently had seen the whole thing. Hughes had talked about who had fallen in the ice. Maybe it was a newsboy, but he couldn't devote this much time to it. Hopefully he could have it wrapped up before lunch, grab a bowl to go on the way back to his desk. Maybe just a couple of hours this morning, hopefully before moving on. Bennett was not only a rising star as an inspector, but also an aspiring lecturer and author on the subject of interrogation and lying. He hadn't much experience, but was well ahead in preparation to become an authority. In the top drawer of the inspector's desk sat his unfinished treatise on the criminal mind and behavior. After a very lengthy introduction, and then an author's note, he begins the first chapter by listing his foolproof methods for interrogation. The chapter begins with a reminder that an interrogation is like any performance. Detectives, like lawyers, rarely ask questions they don't already know the answer to. It then goes on to list some of the common signals to look for if you think someone may be lying. In no particular order, some selects from that list. If your suspect is elusive and vague, they fake smile, they get defensive, they give too much detail in a statement, they repeat questions, giving them time to think. If they don't use I or me statements or stall for time or their voice changes pitch, they might be lying. Always account for nervousness. If they repeat certain words, and if they answer questions with a question. As a footnote to this, Bennett requests that in regular life never to answer a question with a question. Although common, it can be incredibly rude. Simple declarative statements are best. This is followed by the inspector's surefire trick to tell if someone is lying. The easiest trick to find cracks in someone's story is to simply ask them to tell it in reverse. If you're paying close attention, you'll spot any holes with ease. If they refuse outright, well, I think you already have your answer. Be sure to use this responsibly. I will spare you the highlights of chapter two of the treatise, The Essential Sharp Pencil. 
Bennett made his inspector rank by cracking a tricky case known as the piano murder. The other inspectors had got it wrong, and it took Bennett's fine eye to reveal what others hadn't seen. Want to give it a try? Let's see how you do. A young couple had just moved into a fourth floor penthouse. As they moved the last bits from the old apartment into the new one, the husband rushed into the penthouse waving a love note he accidentally discovered amongst his wife's things. Enraged with jealousy at the evidence that his wife had been cheating, he confronted her. The couple argued. The wife denied an affair and the note, saying she'd never seen it before. In his fit of rage, the husband overturned the coffee table and then pushed their crated piano across the floor and out the window. The crate and window glass tumbled onto the street below. The piano had been secured in a wooden crate to protect it for the move, and it and piano shattered on impact on the sidewalk, landing on an innocent bystander. A young clerk on his way to lunch was trapped under the piano and debris. It took a while for officers to arrive. When they inspected the body later at the medical examiners, they determined in a grisly turn that instead of expiring from being crushed, it turned out the clerk had died of suffocation pinned under the weight of the piano. In the time it took for the officers to arrive on the scene, it appeared someone had stolen the clerk's watch and shoes. They arrested the husband for manslaughter and held him in custody. While awaiting trial, Bennett took a look at the case and evidence. He then ordered the husband be released and then arrested the wife instead. Can you figure out why? Have a think about that and we'll get on with the interrogations. Bennett's Notes, Constable Hughes. Notes from conversation with Constable Hughes, timeline established. Hughes arrived in park just before dawn, did not see newsboy at a stand as per usual. Tested pond ice thickness, determined too thick for recreation. Began placing signs around pond. A small group of residents arrived at the pond for morning walks and feeding ducks. Around 20 minutes later, Hughes heard a commotion from a group at the pond edge. Hughes investigated to find suspect Enoch Green out on the ice. Constable made his way out there and found a scarf possibly belonging to the alleged victim, a.k.a. Shiner. No signs of alleged victim present preliminary search and manual search of the water thus far. Witness statement collected with mixed accounts. Conflicting reports if anyone else on ice with Enoch Green. Current time in the morning, rest of force exploring pond for body. At time of notation, likely hypothermia and or drowning for anyone who would have fallen in at recorded time of start of incident. Bennett asked Hughes to bring in each witness one by one, starting with the young lady. Edmund Green III escorted Charity Suter into the room. He took a deep inhale, ready to level a breath of authority and discomfort at the inspector for the mishandling of Enoch and the disruption to their morning. Bennett thanked him and said he wanted to talk to the lady alone. Edmund grumbled and went back to stand near Enoch as the two waited. Bennett's Notebook, Witness Number One, Charity Suter. Bennett asked her what she'd seen that morning, mentioned the missing newsboy. Charity asked what happened. She knew of Shiner, but never spoke with him. She'd certainly never seen Enoch and Shiner together. Edmund had mentioned Enoch had played with other kids in the park, but play would have to be a very generous word for standing near other children as they played. Charity didn't think there would have been enough time for Enoch to have done anything. He was often getting attached to inanimate objects. It's possible he spotted the scarf and chased it onto the ice alone. She admits he's not very much like other children, his demeanor can be off-putting, but she never saw him do anything cruel, just quiet and neutral in expression. She'd only knew Edmund and Enoch for a few weeks, so was hardly an expert. 
For the second time that morning, Charity chose to lie. She'd seen Enoch do things that went from odd to creepy. She had reservations about ever being in the house alone with him. He did have a connection with inanimate objects and held things incorrectly and resisted being corrected. He had a chilly distance when interacting with animals. One time when encouraged to pet a kitty, he robotically moved his hand up and down over the cat's head without touching it, almost as if to comply with the encouragement, but had no desire to connect with the feline or show it affection. Edmund had warned her about Enoch. She'd read about it in The Lantern, about the accident and the adoption. She had tried to show Enoch compassion when they first met, offering her condolences and bringing the boy a small storybook with pressed flowers Charity had made as a child for herself. It was a dear memento for her and was a sincere gesture. Enoch pinched it by the spine away from him, not looking at it. Edmund thanked her for the lovely gift and they moved on to tea and cucumber sandwiches. Charity sensed that Bennett knew something was up. She shifted quickly to an affected tone to keep the conversation moving. She'd spotted Madame Viola lingering outside the door. Charity tilted her head back and pursed her lips in an impression of the old dame. It's impossible to have nice things with all these people about, she said, echoing what lovers of nuance and quiet and subtlety all know to be true. This area was great for a moment, but after something like this, and then the great rush of the rabble and spectacle, and it all goes to Lisa. Lisa had become the slang for bedlam after an article in the Lantern hit front page about a particular society girl's birthday night out. A night of debauchery and chaos that ended up setting fire to a dress shop, released water from a tower, and filled the glass displays of a large apartment store, ending up in a three-block brawl so wild they had to lock up half the neighborhood overnight. Commemorating on the front page of the Lantern, a car pileup with a mangled fire truck and birthday girl Lisa bedraggled and faceplanted in the middle of the street. It was the talk of the town and recreated in every slapstick vaudeville number across Theater Row. For a short while, people would throw intentional Lisa parties to try to top the chaos. The trend culminated with a recording of a hit, Come On All, Let's Get Lisa, with chorus lyrics like, Let's go to the shore, we're all about to get Lisa'd. And as was the way of everything, at first it was funny, then it was cruel, and then it was common. And now, so was Lisa. Bennett wanted to see a bigger mystery everywhere, and always trying to crack a bigger case, and had to be brought down to the ground often. He looked at Charity, at her fancy dress and clothes. She wasn't quite wearing it. A picture was coming together in his mind. Sometimes he would do an exercise where he'd think of the most sinister thing he could think of played out in the most sinister way, just to run it out. And as it came into clarity, he caught a glimpse of something that might be actually worth his time this morning. Something clicked for Bennett as Charity executed her impression. He wasn't quite sure what, but he could just see it. This suddenly caused him to shift direction and ask another series of questions just to cover his bases. He complimented her impression and then asked her if she was from the theater. She affirmed. Don't plays mostly lose money, he asked. Why did she leave Theater Row for Park Row? Why the sudden interest in a rich magnate after spending most of her life with performers? Did she have interest in having children of her own? Charity challenged him. What did this have to do with anything? Her back stiffened as she clutched tighter to her gloves. What was he implying? Suitor. Your father was a dentist, right? Charity was surprised. Yes, I'm sure you read about him. He was a well-known dentist to others. To me, he was a hug at the top of the stairs twice a week before work, and a birthday toffee at the boardwalk once a year. 
Charity drew back, getting defensive. Bennett said he was just trying to be thorough. He ceased his questions, seeing that she was visibly annoyed. Bennett dismissed Charity in a ruffle. She stormed out and complained to Edmund in the waiting area. Edmund looked through the glass to Bennett, who was avoiding his gaze by writing in the notes in his notebook. Constable Hughes seemed a bit confused as well to the line of questioning. What was that? Hughes asked him. Bennett replied, I remember her from a play I went to with a missus some time ago. It got me thinking. You've never seen a young starlet work their way into a lonely rich person's life? I'm stirring the pot a little to see if anything floats up. She could have designs to get rid of the boy. Constable Hughes used his fingers to smooth down the line of his mustache that flowed into his voluminous sideburns, as was habit when he was deep in thought. He almost had it, but then the smell of an amazing chowder wafted out from the kitchen, distracting him. Before Bennett could call in Enoch for questions, Madame Viola cut through the line of witnesses and stood in the doorway. This is the last thing that Bennett wanted was interruptions. He just wanted to get back to headquarters. But as she shoved her way in, Hughes tried to kind of run in for a block. Madame Viola was having none of it. She stared Hughes down and then moved to stand over Bennett at his table. It's probably impossible to tell if Madame Viola is lying. Her stream of patter is so consistent and smooth. Her effect so removed and singular in its train of thought that you have to just hang on for the ride and hope you arrive somewhere pleasant. Often people in conversation with her find themselves agreeing to all sorts of things they didn't anticipate or even really understand. They didn't want to cross her or bring her wrath down upon their heads. She had a reputation for being ruthless at times, but oddly pleasant with a dry sense of wit, and when in her company, you felt the underlying desire to want her to like you. She was shrewd and extremely clever and seemed to know everything going on in the city. She rarely showed any sign of weakness, so to be out in public like this, it was clear she was rattled. Viola launched into her plea. Thank you, Inspector, for responding so quickly to my crisis. It's nice to see the force in this neighborhood anticipate my needs for once. That lousy man ran off with my priceless plum this morning. I need you to hunt him and force a confession out of him, if you have to. I let him look after my prince, and he goes and runs off. It can't be imagined that plum is in the ice. That odious fool neglects everything. I'll drown that little man in the pond myself if he doesn't come back with my plum. Bennett informed Madame Viola of the actual reason he was there. To find a lost boy that had fallen in the ice. A what? A boy? I don't understand. Oh, I don't know anything about that. I suppose I may have seen him, but I don't mind such things as you can imagine. Pumble irons my news as it comes to the house in the mornings to take the chill out of it and set the ink. I wouldn't have any need for grubby paper from the corner newsboy. Don't they live rough and tumble lives by choice? The winter season, the cold, always takes one or two little match girls as a matter of course. Madame Viola waved away the concern and pointed her finger into the desk. Listen, that's not the issue here. We cannot be too bothered by that when we are in a crisis like a missing one-of-a-kind treasure like my plum. You don't understand. She's been highly trained at great personal cost. She has special skills, talents, you hear me? She's priceless. You must bring everything you have to bear until she is recovered. Inspector, I'm sure you know the great influence I can bring down on a city employee as yourself in a time like this. I'm trusting you with this, unless we need to get someone more capable. I'm more than happy to present the force with a grant for more equipment or new winter coats. She motioned at his buttons. If needs must, find my plum. She didn't shout, but the sheer quake of her presence rattled the windows in their frames. 
She waved him away, looked to the ceiling for a moment in contemplation, and then quickly removed herself from the room and stormed home. Out of the pond, more slush. No signs of life. The ducks had been wrangled between two park benches with generous bits of Grandmama's bread to keep them safely out of the way from the aggressive pond assault taking place. After the dust had settled and the windows became still, Bennett quickly got to Enoch. Edmund glared at Bennett as he held the door for Enoch and walked in and sat in the chair opposite him. Edmund pulled out the second chair, but Bennett graciously asked him to talk to the boy alone for a few moments. Edmund hesitated, but seemed relieved when he escorted Charity back out into the waiting area. Bennett's note, suspect, boy, primary school age, expensive clothing and good repair, no signs of any kind of struggle on clothes or face and hands. Note that the alleged suspect seems to be nonverbal. Bennett tried several questions with Enoch and got the predictable no reply. He watched his eyes and hands for a flicker of expression and reaction. Nothing discernible. Had he been playing with anyone else? Did he see anyone go in the ice? Was he happy in his new house with Edmund? Was Charity his new friend? Did he know Shiner? Did Shiner do anything to provoke him? Did he have any other friends in the area? Bennett grew frustrated. He leaned back and removed a small bag of sweets from his pocket. He partially unwrapped it as he was talking, taking his time so that the wrapping made a crinkling sound, teasing the sweet sugar treat hidden within the paper. He popped one in his mouth, taking his time to chew it, and then pulled out a second sweet and offered it across the table. Enoch flopped one waterlogged mitten onto the desk and reached for the candy, keeping eye contact with Bennett like a wild coyote sneaking in to steal a bone. He snatched the candy away and popped it in his mouth. Bennett asked again. He reassured him that he wasn't in any trouble and no one was mad at him. They just needed to know if anyone had an accident and fell in. He wanted to make sure they could rescue them before it was too late. Nothing. Eyes to the corner. The mouth working the candy. Bennett let a sharp breath out his nose and leaned back in his chair. He motioned out the glass and Edmund rose to retrieve him. Enoch hopped off his chair and silently walked into the waiting area. Bennett looked at Hughes, sighed, and then muttered, release them. Hughes looked at the door, kind of puzzled. Bennett saw a man's tilted head peek into the room and away again. He rose to close the door, and just outside, soaked to the bone and shivering, was a man drenched like a wet cat dunked in a barrel. A bushy mustache and two spiky hair tufts shooting off the back of his mostly bald head, his beady eyes quivering with terror, and his butler uniform hanging loosely off his skinny frame as it dripped water all over Eleanor's floor. Standing before him was the elusive Pumble, manservant to Madame Viola and missing peacock wrangler, who held an empty decorative leash up in front of him in complete shame and failure. Not the damn bird again, he thought to himself. Bennett took the leash, led Pumble inside, and let him stand before the metal heating stove so he could dry off. He placed his coat and hat on a hook overhead, and steam rose off as it began to dry. Pumble wrung out sections of his clothes and used Bennett's offered handkerchief to dry his face and hands. He shuffled over to the chair and sat down with a squish. I'm so sorry, he said. Bennett asked, about what? Pumble's eyes started to swell with tears. His mouth opened, but no sound came out. He strapped Bennett's handkerchief across his bottom jaw and clenched down on it, crying, and released a flow of muffled words that were indecipherable, but 
reeked of some kind of guilt and long-running resentment. He took in giant breaths through his nose, flaring his wiry nose hairs before expulsing another round like a dry heave convulsing up through his body and out through the handkerchief. Please calm yourself, said Bennett. Try to take deep breaths. Bennett leaned back, grabbed a fresh pencil. Your name is Pumble? Hughes quickly whispered to him. Er, Paul Trumbull? You're in the ploy of Madame Viola as the majordomo? Uh, the butler? Pumble nodded, jaw still clenched. You were taking her peacock, Plum, for a walk this morning. A low moan came from Pumble like the growing growl of an air raid siren as he leaned over what seemed like a mean stomach cramp. I don't understand. Did you see something? Bennett asked. Did the peacock go into the ice? Did her... Check his notes. Her plum fall into the water? I, I don't understand. Why are you wet? A couple of constables burst into the room with pale looks on their faces. They motioned for Hughes and Bennett to follow them back outside. They'd found something. Something in the water. Something deep. Bennett snapped his fingers to gesture Pumble out of the room. They hurried back to the pond edge where a group of constables were making a half circle to block the view from the rest of the public. There, floating in the edge of the churning water, the broken ice and black, the constables had placed a white sheet over a figure prone at the water's edge. Bennett crouched near the figure and reached out to pull back the sheet. Flash bulbs. Ross and Gill, two journals from the lantern, nosed their way into the circle. Their wiry figures smushed together as if both were jammed into the same raincoat. Their upper bodies angled out in different directions, with matching pairs of dark glasses. Ross fired off a series of flashes for photos, and Gill licked the end of a pencil to attack a notepad. What's the stick, Dix? Bennett grabbed his hat to quickly cover the camera lens. Gill kept pressing for a story. Care to comment? Word on the street says there's a missing kid under the ice. What we got wrapped up in that sheet? Gotta make the evening addition. What's got old Lady Viola in such a huff, eh? Rich lady lose a brooch? Bennett squinted against the flashes, annoyed. They shoved the journals out of the circle, but it made a hole big enough for the gathered crowd to see the figure outlined in the sheet, pressed against it in the flapping wind. There was a gasp of murmurs and more flashbulbs as Ross got pics of the alarmed faces under the dark afternoon clouds. Bennett pointed at the sheet and shouted to take it to the examiner's office immediately. The men heaved the sheet back onto the back of the wagon, covered it with another thick blanket, and dashed off quickly away from the park. Bennett ordered for the men to continue searching the pond, not knowing all that was down there. They hadn't gotten a great look at what was under the sheet before the crowd and press nosed in and needed to get it away. Hughes looked upset. In order to distract him, Bennett put him in charge of the search for the bird and to fan out across the park before they lost the light. The men continued to drag the pond until the stars twinkled in the crisp dark sky after nightfall. Hughes half-heartedly searched the park for Plum, the lost peacock. The team warmed themselves in shifts with bisque, tea, and sandwiches at the bistro. Eleanor tried in vain to keep up with muck and mud tracked in by the men's boots. Bennett gathered his things, and Hughes set a box down on the table. A couple buttons, shiner's scarf, a few cigarette butts, and a rotten turnip. The day's catch. Two lies, one confession, a box of evidence, an unknown figure under a sheet, and a bag of collected muddy coins meant for wishes. Charity accompanied Enoch home to the fires of Edmund's large hearth. Madame Viola refused to make eye contact with Pumble when he returned home. Hughes and Bennett compared notes to the bistro as Eleanor swept up the kitchen. Bennett picked through the box of evidence and held up the turnip. Looks like you cracked the snowman murder, he said, trying to lighten the mood a little. Was that shiner under the white sheet that was rushed away so quickly? Did you get a good look? 
What happened to Plum that had Pumble and Fitz and sopping wet? Curious that Hughes would make his way to the medical examiner's office for the second time that day. Did you happen to crack the piano murder? Need a bit more time? Conclusions like Sherry may need some time to refine themselves. Thoughts need to marinate with the clues we have on hand. Some of us, like Inspector Bennett, seek to find deep hidden truth in everything, peeling back layers of the unknown. While others are more sensible, they take their time and see just an unfortunate accident. Perhaps just a series of common occurrences in a bustling metropolis, with a group of common people in a park built from a dusty commons, with a dyed black pond in a strange city lying alone, whose only comfort today was the warmth of an uncommon soup. Tune in for the next episode of Celine. Would you like a ticket to enjoy the revelry of Moonlight Affair? Our Patreon is a place where you can see all the sordid savagery and indecent decadence of the mysteries of our fair city. Want some answers for once? Solve the mysteries and share never-before-heard stories, music, and spectacle. Come be a part of Moonlight Affair, Silent Treatment, and Celine with the other spirits again and again and again and again and again and again. 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.